it wonderful? When the mic is on, isn't it wonderful to have these Los Lunas High School students here with us today? Thank you all for being here. Yeah. And they were also here at the 9 a.m. service, so I gave them my blessing to slip out and not sit through a whole other sermon, <laughs> the same sermon. Will you rise and body your spirit with your gray hymnals? We're going to turn to number 445 and do our call to worship together as a responsive reading. I'll read the plain fonts and you can join with me on the italics. Number 445, The Womb of Stars. The womb of stars embraces us. Remnants of their fiery furnaces pulse through our veins. We are of the stars and dust of the explosions cast across space. We are of the earth. We breathe and live in the breath of ancient plants and beasts. Their cells nourish the soil. We build our communities on their harvest of gifts. Our fingers trace the curves carved in clay and stone by forebears unknown to us. We are a part of the great circle of humanity, gathered around the fire, the hearth, the altar. We gather anew this day to celebrate our common heritage. May we recall in gratitude all that has given us earth. Let us worship together. Please join in singing hymn number 184, Be Ye Lamps Unto Yourselves. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. I'm Judy Goring. My pronouns are she, her. Whether you are in the physical or virtual sanctuary, in the social hall or family well, all are welcome here. I'd like to invite you to look around for a moment. Notice who's sitting in front of you, next to you, behind you. Take it in. 
Our services are multi-generational. They tend to be lively. Kids are welcome to sit right up front or anywhere in the sanctuary. We have a playground down in the front for our smallest congregants with a soft rug and cool toys to play with. There's a children's table in the back uh, with some quiet activities. And for youngsters, you know, who could use a little more room to move, the family room across the hall has toys and a live feed of the service. We are one people of many beliefs, many origins, sexualities, and genders. There are no others here. We are all growing, all learning, all loved. You are all welcome here. We're going to do our meditation and prayer today with music interspersed throughout. We'll alternate between spoken word and some sung verses. So it's number 1031 in your turquoise hymnal, if you want to get that page ready. If you've been coming to First Unitarian for a long time, this will be familiar to you. We do this every once in a while. Lydia is going to lead us, so when the time comes for the singing, you'll just join right in. And if you haven't heard it before, you'll catch on after the first round, for sure. It's pretty simple. Only the subject changes. <clears throat> may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. Then may you be filled with loving kindness. Then may we be filled with loving kindness. And in between, I'll say a few words. And at the end, we'll have a minute of silence. So let's start by getting present. Bring yourself into the room, your body is here, but I, I know a teacher who checks in with her class by asking everyone to say whether they're here, getting here, or completely off the planet. <laughs> so wherever you are besides here, <laughs> I welcome you. I invite you to arrive with your next breath, land in that seat with the rest of your weight, and give it over to that chair, and just be held. Whatever you've got on your mind, lay it down for a few minutes. Family stuff, financial stuff, work or life stuff. Go ahead and lay all that down and just be you for now. Just a human merely being, as E.E. E. Cummings says. With your next inhalation, breathe in the peace of this new day. The peace beneath all chaos, it's always there deep down. Breathe and be. And let love wash over you. The love beneath all chaos, the love that is always there 
deep down, even if you lose touch with it for a while. You were made for it. Let the music wash over you and let the words rise from deep within you. let's lift up some people in our congregation, people in our lives who are in need of prayer. From my pastoral list, I lift up Tom Brown, who's facing a new health issue. We wish him strength and resilience in this time. I invite you to think of the people in your hearts and minds their names to your lips and speak them aloud as I gesture toward you so that we can hold them with you. Any names? For all who are on our minds and in our hearts, now for our world, for our city, our state, our country, and our planet, in which all beings are interconnected. For steadiness, for the courage to do what must be done, for all of these and for all of the unspoken prayers among us, we sing.
we continue in silence. May it be so. Peace be with you. Amen. What do we know about the Buddha? Did you know that there are more than one? Today, I want to tell you the story of the Buddha that Buddhism began with. Once upon a time, actually around 500 years before the birth of Jesus, a boy was born to the king and queen of the Shakya clan. This happened in present day Nepal in a kingdom in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. His father named him Prince Siddhartha Gotama, and as was the custom, called for a seer, a wise man, to foretell the direction the prince's life would take. The wise man told the king that the baby would become either a great king like his father, or an enlightened teacher. If the prince were to see the four passing sights, old age, sickness, death, and a wandering ascetic, he would renounce his royal life and seek enlightenment. An ascetic is someone who practices self-denial as a spiritual practice. They have given up all worldly pleasures to gain a higher state of being. King, <clears throat> sorry, the king, of course, was determined that his son would also become a great king and tried to shield Prince Siddhartha from these four realities of life by keeping him within the palace grounds. But at the age of 29, Siddhartha, along with his charioteer, Shana, left the palace grounds and for the first time, the prince encountered suffering. Losing my voice a little. He saw the four sights. A man bent with old age, a person afflicted with sickness, and a person who had died, which Shana explained to the prince as things that will happen to us all. Then he saw a wandering ascetic, who had devoted his life to finding the cause of human suffering. 
It was the fourth sight that filled Siddhartha with a sense of urgency to find out for himself what was at the foot of human suffering. Siddhartha left his royal family <clears throat> and the luxury of the palace. He studied and lived a very simple life in the forest with a group of respected teachers and ascetics of his time. Eventually, he found that their teachings and severe self-denial did not help him to answer the question of suffering or provide the answer to how to be released from it. Having experienced a life of self-indulgence in the palace and then a life of self-denial in the forest, he finally settled on a middle way, a balance between these two extremes. Accepting food from a village child, he recovered his strength and began a journey inward through the practice of meditation. According to tradition, Siddhartha seated himself under a large tree. He vowed to sit beneath the tree until he had gained a deep understanding of suffering. As he sat through the night, a peaceful stillness spread upon his mind, like that of a lake on a windless day. The stillness enabled him to see even more deeply and clearly into the cycle of grasping, clinging, and egotism, the root of suffering. While he was meditating, the demon king, Mara, tried to attack him with arrows of passion, fear, pride, thirst, and many other desires rose to challenge Siddhartha's intense concentration of mind. This happened because Mara wanted to claim enlightenment for himself. But Siddhartha touched the earth with his hand, calling on the earth to bear witness to his path to enlightenment. The earth itself roared, I bear you the witness, and with that, the demon king Mara disappeared. When the morning star appeared, Siddhartha Gautama had become the Buddha, literally, the awakened one. He had found the way to free himself from the cycle of desire and suffering. He had woken up to the nature of the changing world and the causes of suffering. This state of awakening is also called nirvana, which literally means the blowing out of the fires of ego-centered attachment, which are the source of suffering. The tree he sat under became known as the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. Do you remember me telling you that there are more than one Buddha? Siddhartha is called the Shakyamuni Buddha, the sage of the Shakya clan to make clear that his awakening is not only his. Over time, and even before Siddhartha's time, there have been others who have awakened to the truth and gained enlightenment, becoming Buddhas themselves. In fact, sometimes those Buddhas are depicted by the thousands, for 
the Buddha nature is the true awakened nature of all living beings. What happened next? It is said that out of his great compassion, the newly enlightened Shakyamuni Buddha set out to show others the path he had followed so that they might follow that path as well. After his awakening, the Shakyamuni Buddha taught in the cities and villages of northern India for 45 years until his death. And Buddhism, his way of the middle ground, spread throughout the land. pulpit has been about one degree askew all morning. <laughs> You're learning something about me right now. <laughs> First, a reading. At one time, the Buddha was at Mala and taught thus. When a mountain stream overflows and becomes a torrent of floodwater carrying debris, a person who wants to get across it might think, what is the safest way to cross the flood water? Assessing the situation, she may decide to gather branches and grasses, construct a raft, and use the raft to get safely across. But after arriving on the other side, she thinks, I spent a lot of time and energy building this raft. It's a prized possession, and I'll carry it with me as I continue my journey. If she puts it on her shoulders or her head and she carries the raft with her, do you think that would be intelligent, he asked. The monks replied, no, world-honored one. The Buddha said, how could she have acted more wisely? She could have thought, this raft helped me get across the water safely. Now I will leave it at the water's edge for someone else to use in the same way. Wouldn't that be a more intelligent thing to do? The monks replied, yes, world-honored one. The Buddha taught, I have given this teaching on the raft many times to remind you how necessary it is to let go of all the true teachings, not to mention teachings that are not true. Those of us who've been mainly exposed to American Buddhism might be surprised to realize, though you know it on some level, that in eastern parts of the world, the tradition looks different than the Americanized version. And much of what we are exposed to here is indeed Americanized. Buddhism, like other traditions, is diverse, and it's shaped by its cultural context. And there's more than one major school of Buddhism. There's Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. There are also many kinds of Buddhism within each of these three categories, many subcategories, you could say. So what are some of the differences and similarities between those? Well, generally speaking, Theravada relies on the Pali Canon, texts written in the Pali language, P-A-L-I. Those contain the Buddha's earliest teachings and discourse. A canon, by the way, C-A-N-O-N, -N, not the other kinds, 
is a collection of texts that are accepted as authoritative. Insight meditation comes from Theravada. You probably heard of that. Insight meditation became popular in Myanmar and was brought to the US back in the 1960s. And its focus is on awakening or enlightenment. Sharon Salzberg is a well-known American insight meditation teacher. I'm gonna draw from her teachings uh, a little bit later in this sermon. Like Theravada, Mahayana Buddhism also relies on that Pali canon, but it may also include texts beyond that canon, additional texts. And its focus isn't just on personal awakening, but on cultivating Buddhahood for all sentient beings. Mahayana meditation practice often includes more chanting and mantras than Theravada. Zen Buddhism is one of the traditions that comes from Mahayana. Angel Kyoto Williams is a Zen Buddhist priest, and I quoted her in the blurb describing today's sermon. The third school, Vajrayana, is sometimes called tantric or esoteric Buddhism. And some actually consider it to be part of Mahayana, but others consider it to be its own third category. This is the kind of Buddhism that includes Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama. Mia told us the story of how about 2,500 years ago, a prince named Siddhartha became the Buddha instead of a king. After enlightenment, he spent 45 years crisscrossing the Ganges Plain in northern India, during which time he gave many, many teachings. And underlying them were four noble truths, as they are known. The first one is that there is suffering. The second one, there is a cause of suffering. The third, there is an end to suffering. And the fourth, the way out is the eightfold path. Sometimes people have accused Buddhism of being pessimistic because of all this suffering talk. But the Buddha wasn't saying that life is all suffering. He was saying that suffering exists. Life also has plenty of happiness. But we do okay with happiness, right? That doesn't send us scrambling for a religion to help us make sense of life. Suffering is the part that we humans need some help either living with or resolving. We suffer, the Buddha taught, because of our relationship with impermanence. Everything changes. We can't make anything permanent, including our happiness. Trying to hang on to the things and the people and the conditions that we are happy about or that we enjoy leads to suffering because eventually everything changes and our very lives are going to pass away. When Angel Kyoto Williams says, what does it mean to be born into this life and to be so bothered by it? She is talking about that, the suffering that humans experience just because of the way we relate to the human condition, which is that we are mortal and we live in a state of change. There's suffering, but the Buddha taught there's also an end to it, and the end can be found through that eightfold path. In its explanation of Buddhism for beginners, the Buddhist magazine Tricycle explains the eightfold path this way. They write, the path begins with right view, which is also called right understanding. We need to see clearly with our minds where we are headed before we begin. Right intention means the resolve to follow this path. So we have right view and right intention. 
Right speech and right action refer to what we say and do, to not harming other people or ourselves with our words and behavior. Right livelihood means how we live day to day, making sure our habits and our work don't cause harm to ourselves or others. Right effort refers to focusing our energy on the task at hand. Right mindfulness means awareness of the mind and body. With mindfulness, we might pause and consider whether what we are doing is harmful to ourselves or others. And finally, right concentration refers to dedicated practice, whether it's meditation or chanting. In other words, once we have directed our minds and our lives toward awakening, we can proceed. So view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Another important and very old teaching in Buddhism is that we should try the teachings out for ourselves and see if they ring true. The reading I started with is about letting go of teachings that are no longer useful or are not true. So here we have a set of simple teachings, but they're things that can take a lifetime, or in the Buddhist worldview, many lifetimes, to fully flesh out and live into. We've got just a few minutes here this morning to delve into this, so we can't cover very much, but I can share a small part that I have found to be very true and valuable in my own life, and I invite you to consider it for yourself and see whether it's true for you as well. It has to do with the concept of faith, but through a Buddhist lens. Sharon Salzberg writes that in Pali, the word for faith is sada, which means to place the heart upon. To place the heart upon. So it's not faith as a suspension of reason and logic. And faith isn't something that you'd better have or else, right? Like in some traditions. But it's a verb. To place the heart upon. So we don't have faith. We fave, Salzburg says. And faith of this kind begins by acknowledging that the nature of our lives and of the world is change. Everything is changing. Everything is passing away, leading into something else. This is true about the things that structure our days, about relationships. It's true about feelings. We might be cheerful in the morning and cranky in the afternoon and pensive in the evening, or in my case, cranky in the morning pensive in the afternoon, because I'm a minister, I go to work, and cheerful at night. <laughs> right? We may feel spiritually fulfilled and at peace one moment and then tormented or alone the next. And all that lies outside of us is also in flux. People and things come and go. Whole institutions, whole nations rise and fall. Even the Sandia and the Magdalena Mountains are wearing away in the wind right now. Now, and this is important, what happens is when we cling to what was never permanent, we suffer and we are not able to fully live. Buddhism observes that our attachment to what we cannot control and to what is not permanent is a major source of suffering. And the answer is to practice non-attachment. That can be challenging. I mentioned a couple Sundays ago, I studied Buddhism 
formally in graduate school and informally through self-study and through practice and retreats. I learned to do pastoral care from Buddhist teachers. I've studied Buddhist scriptures. And yet, for a long time, I struggled to understand this core principle. I like my attachments, I thought. I'm attached to the people I love, to my vocation, to poetry and music and beautiful things. I thought that letting go of attachments meant trying not to enjoy the people I love and the things that I like, or that it meant caring about them less. And I thought, even if the objects of my love are mortal and life is transient and losing them someday is going to cause me suffering, it's worth it. It's totally worth it because I love them so much. And so it just seemed worth that risk, that certainty. I was afraid that letting go of attachment would mean not loving life deeply, that it would mean trying to be neutral toward things and toward life. But really, nothing could be further from the truth. In Buddhism, being attached is not the same as loving somebody or enjoying what's pleasurable. To love is to care deeply for someone. Enjoyment is just a natural part of life. It's one of life's gifts. But to be attached is to be unable to let go of something when it's already gone. To be attached is to be unable to let go after the thing is gone. It's to cling to the illusion that dream, that longing for permanence. When we're attached, instead of letting go, we might rage against the absence of the thing or the person or the status or the ability or fill in the blank of whatever we have lost. We might obsess over that change, asking, why me? Or we might even turn against ourselves, wondering what's wrong with us that this thing happened, right? That this that this loss occurred. And we might run again and again through daydreams of the ways that we could have prevented the loss, we could have those looping thoughts. And in the process of all of this effort to stay attached to the thing that's already gone, we wind up in tunnel vision mode. We don't see what else is happening around us. We only see our loss and our feelings about it. And this kind of attachment is a major source of suffering. So faith is trusting the change. And it's letting go when it's time and staying present. We can choose to try to stay present in our lives and to see the present moment and the larger picture in which we always knew change was built in. We always knew it was going to happen and unfold. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel sad or angry or have other negative feelings about it. Those are appropriate feelings when we experience a loss. But we don't need to subject ourselves to the suffering that comes from continually resisting reality and grasping at something that we cannot hold on to. That kind of attachment prevents us from moving forward or even being in the now. By accepting the reality of what is, even if we don't like it, by just accepting that that's what's real, we reduce our suffering and we allow ourselves to be open to the present, which means we allow ourselves to be open to the help, the peace, the sources of strength and courage that are available right now and to the transition we must make. Negative feelings will just pass over us like storm clouds. We don't try to hold on to them. 
it's hard. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. So that we don't miss the gifts that life also offers us if we would just pay attention. It's easier if we've also been practicing non-attachment and presence in good times with easier things. But society and our own impulses kind of conspire against us in this. Most of us are in a pretty constant state of distraction. Much of that is the pursuit of pleasure or its inferior substitute, numbness. And it's not that pleasure is bad. Again, pleasure is good. But the constant distracting pursuit of it can be a sneaky, destructive way of tuning out our lives. And that has a way of catching up with us. I think of the words of the mystic Rumi, who was Sufi, he was not Buddhist, but he said, sit down and be quiet. You are drunk and this is the edge of the roof. <laughs> you know, when we go through life, when we go through life depending on impermanent things for our sense of peace and stability, chasing pleasure or numbness, it is like we are careening, right? All the while at the brink in any given moment of an experience that will shatter that false peace. And it's as though we are drunk on an illusion. We're right there at the edge of the roof in life. Faith, the verb, begins with awakening to this reality and then paying attention, presence. If that sounds too hard, here's one more thought for you. In Sharon Salzberg's telling of how the Buddha came to be who he was, when she gets to the part about the demon Mara attacking him, she shares a little bit more detail. She says, Mara tried to distract Siddhartha with seductive visions and storms and then frightening and disgusting images. This is what happens. In fact, right when we get still and quiet a lot of the time, like junk comes up in our minds. But Siddhartha persisted. And then Mara tried to shake Siddhartha by challenging his worthiness. Mara asked him basically, who do you think you are to be sitting there with that immense aspiration, that huge spiritual goal? What makes you think that you could be enlightened? In response, as Mia described, the Buddha reached down and touched the earth with his hand, asking it to bear witness to all the lifetimes in which he had practiced generosity and morality and loving kindness and wisdom. He asked the earth to bear witness to his right to even be sitting there, his right to aspire to full understanding and infinite compassion, which he didn't have yet. He was working on it. And with that, Mara was defeated. It's significant, Salzburg says, that Mara attacked Siddhartha's sense of worth. Because how many of us see great spiritual teachers or even just people we admire for their presence, or their groundedness, or their wisdom? How many of us see them and think, I couldn't be like that? I'm not wise enough or serious enough or whatever the thing is. But you don't have to be a Buddha already. You don't have to be perfect to be present to your life or to find out what it is you can place your heart upon or to grow in faith. That is some of the wisdom of Buddhism. 
And that is also my prayer for you today. It's hot outside. June kicked off with its hottest start on record and surpassed pre-industrial levels by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. El Nino conditions and more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere are driving global temperatures up. The water temperatures off the coast of Miami, Florida are in the mid to upper 90s. What's the temperature of your hot tub? Whether you believe it's science and or human control, as Unitarians, we believe in our seventh principle, which states that we affirm and promote respect for the independent web of all existence, of all we are a part. We can and do make a difference. Under our Social Justice Council umbrella, we have EarthWeb. EarthWeb vision is education, action, and appreciation for our beautiful planet in the face of the many environmental challenges. And the Green Sanctuary Program, an educational and action group, First Unitarian became one of the first congregations to be cited as a green sanctuary in 2002. The LEED Platinum Certified Sanction Building, our sanction sanctuary building is one of a handful of platinum certified churches across the nation and the first LEED Platinum Church in New Mexico. It is also a net zero building. We are a member of the New Mexico Interfaith and Light which urges people of faith to recognize their call to be good stewards of the earth and to pursue environmental justice for all our brothers and sisters around the world. Our Change for the Future partner this month offers another way, Libros for Kids, partners with Dolly Parton's Imagination Library to mail free books each month to children in Bernalillo and Valencia counties. With a free book each month, from birth to age five, each child receives their own library of 60 books, including 12 bilingual titles. You can earmark your donation for Libros for Kids by using the envelope on the back of the chair writing CFF on the envelope. Your generosity sustains this community and all the bodies within it. With your love, and support, our church will continue to engage with the many needs of our communities. We will now gratefully receive the offering.
Thank you, everyone, for your generosity. Thank you on behalf of the congregation and on behalf of Libros for Kids, our Change for the Future partner. May these gifts lead to many good works. We've got a couple of invitations and also some news to share, actually. I want to introduce you to someone, and we're going to also say goodbye to someone. Is Tanya Collin in here? Tanya? There you are. Would you mind standing up for a moment? Tanya is our church administrator, and she's been with us since March of last year. She has been so important in helping us resume functioning um, after the COVID lockdowns and our 18 months of being all virtual. She had rebuilt so many systems behind the scenes that keep this place going. And in the meantime, she was working on a master's degree, which she completed. We didn't try to stop her. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of thought about it. <laughs> and so we're so happy for you, Tanya, that you found a job that matches your new level of um, qualifications. And we just wish you the very best as you head off to that new thing. Let's show her our appreciation. And next to Tanya is Erin Snyder, our new church administrator. <laughs> Erin has just moved here from Texas. Uh, it's cooler here, I guess. I don't, <laughs> it yeah, it actually is, okay. <laughs> um, it's been wonderful getting to know Erin this week. She started this week. She's um, shadowing Tanya and learning how to do all the things. Um, she brings wonderful administration skills with her. And so welcome, Erin. We're so glad you're here. Yeah. Would you like to? engage in great conversation and connect with more people in this congregation, we invite you to the chat table out in the social hall. Grab a cup of coffee, tea, hot water, or hot water. <laughs> Cold water with ice. <laughs> and sit down and, and chit chat and invite you to talk with people you may not, not even know. Have a good time. Whatever floats your boat, right? Hot, cold. Uh, while you're at it, you might like to have a conversation starter, and maybe you'll even use it in other places in your day today besides our official chat table. So how about this? Um, where in your life might you try practicing some non-attachment right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> where might you practice some non-attachment? How might you do it? There's a conversation starter. Uh, some of you commented when you came in about the broken window over here on the north side of our building. It's one of three, I think, three or four windows that were broken by rocks uh, on Thursday. Yeah, one of them's on my office, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot of property crime in this area. It's, our business neighbors are constantly targeted as well. So we just deal with it as it comes, and we appreciate your concern uh, and we have already had uh, contractors here taking measurements and placing orders, so it'll be resolved soon, hopefully. All right, I invite everyone to rise in body or spirit. Let's greet each other with a gesture of peace. We like to do it with one hand over our hearts, and we just extend another one toward our fellow people who are here this morning. Peace to all. Peace. <laughs>
Go in peace, friends, and may love bless you and keep you until we are gathered again. Blessed be. Mm -hmm.